0: Let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 as we continue our study of Mark's gospel. We'll be looking at Mark 14 and verse 25 this evening. This is the concluding verse of Mark's account of the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And we will read verses 22 to 26. Mark 14, beginning at verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's again pray and seek the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you that you've given us this time to gather together to worship you. Lord, we thank you for this privilege. And we ask again for your help and your blessing upon these moments as we seek to open up your word. Lord, we feel our inadequacy to touch upon things of such glory and wonder in depth, as we consider these words of Christ and his actions and all that they point to. So we ask for your help. Give us strength tonight, and may your word be received in faith and in love by all, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As a young believer, I thought of my salvation as mainly a thing in the past, so I was saved. Christ had saved me from my sins, and that was certainly true. It is true, and it's true of every believer. We can say that if you are believing in Christ, you say, I was saved, I was once lost, I've now been found. But that's not quite the full picture as we think about the salvation that the scriptures speak of. And point us to. It's salvation in Christ, full and final. That belongs to the future. It belongs to what the Bible calls our glorification. That's where it's going. That's where our salvation ends up in glorification. But there's also a present aspect. And this was something that maybe I understood a little bit better. But it's that aspect in which we're being further sanctified. God has sanctified us. He has set us apart in Christ. He's made us his own. And yet he's further sanctifying us. And we are kept by the power of God, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1 to 5. Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. There you see the present aspect And that final aspect of our salvation are brought together. Now, we often refer to these truths as the three tenses of our salvation past, present, and future. And I think I first heard this terminology years ago from Alistair Begg, and it was so helpful when I first saw this concept in the scriptures. We have been saved, and yet we are being saved. And we look forward to the day when we shall be saved fully and finally. In the same way, we could speak of the three tenses of the Lord's Supper. As we consider the Lord's Supper, there are three tenses. There's the past tense of the Lord's Supper. So we do it in remembrance of Christ. As we read in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me, Christ said, in remembrance of his person, in remembrance of his work, his redeeming work for us. We also see that we proclaim his death till he comes. We proclaim his death on the cross in the past for us. So we look back to our redemption accomplished by Christ when we take the Lord's Supper. And the elements of the bread and the wine remind us of this. And We were looking at this previously, the bread reminding us, the bread that Christ gives in the supper, reminding us that he is the bread of life. He's the true bread from heaven and that all who feast upon him by faith will have eternal life. But he also gives us that cup and it reminds us of the sacrificial nature of his death. That his blood was shed. His blood was poured out for sinners. He was a sacrifice. He gave himself as that perfect final sacrifice. A substitutionary sacrifice. And we looked at the language of Isaiah 53, which I believe is is pointed to here in the words of Jesus when he says, For many his blood is shed. So Isaiah 53, we saw the suffering servant who died in our place for our sins. Christ, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, we remember. But also the covenantal sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of blood, covenant blood, Jesus says. This is the new covenant in my blood. All of this we are to remember as we take the supper. So it has a past element very clearly. But there is a present element or aspect of the Lord's Supper, and that is communion with Christ in the present, that we who partake by faith do now presently enjoy the fruits of the accomplished work of Christ for us, and obviously his ongoing intercession for us. So his body and blood, we say, are spiritually present to the faith of believers in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Redemption applied, past, present, but then also there is future. Not only do we have this communion with Christ in the present, but we look forward when we take the supper. There is an anticipation in the supper of what Jesus calls that day, that day when he returns and shall drink wine new with his redeemed people in the consummated kingdom. It's redemption completed then that we look at as well. Redemption accomplished, redemption applied, redemption completed. All of this in the Lord's Supper. Three tenses of the Lord's Supper. Now we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the Lord's Supper is primarily about the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, his sacrificial death for sinners, for the forgiveness of sins. It's about that primarily, but not exclusively. When we look forward in the Lord's Supper, what we look forward to is based on what Christ has accomplished It's clear, though, in our text and elsewhere that Jesus did mean for us, his church, to take the Lord's Supper, not just with an eye to the past and an eye to the present, but with an eye to the future, an eye to our salvation being completed, full and final salvation. So we shouldn't ignore the future or forward-looking aspect of the Supper. And that's what we've come to do tonight. Jesus would have us partake with hope. He would have us partake with joy and anticipation of the final state. So we see this very clearly. Look again at our text in verse 25. The second part of it in particular, when he speaks of drinking new in the kingdom of God. But there is that Till he comes of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, which we read every time we take the Lord's Supper. Till he comes. And one man has said that that word until is indelibly inscribed on the banner that stands over every Lord's Supper. So when we take, we should remember those words. Until, until he comes, until that day in the language of our text. Now, if we need further confirmation of this forward-looking aspect of the Lord's Supper, we only need to turn to Luke 22. And you don't have to turn there, you can if you like, but I'll read Luke 22, a few verses there. And this is the parallel account in Luke. And Luke gives us more detail than what we have in Matthew and in Mark. And when we read Luke 22... This forward-looking aspect is brought out even more clearly. So Luke 22, beginning at verse 14, we read that when the hour had come, Jesus sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Looking forward. Verse 17, that he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There's anticipation as we take the Lord's Supper. So we turn our attention tonight to the final verse of Mark's account back in Mark 14. We've considered the immediate context of the institution of the Lord's Supper and we saw that in verses 12 to 21. We saw the preparations for the Passover meal. This comes in the context of a Passover meal. We should keep that in mind. And in the midst of that, In this context, Jesus had announced that one of them would betray him. We looked at verse 22, the bread. We looked last time at the cup in verses 23 and 24. And now the promise, the weighty words of verse 25. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus indicates that these words are especially worthy of attention. They're words of solemn truth. They're words from the one who, not long after he spoke these words, would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, assuredly, truly, I say to you, this is meant to be noticed. They are to listen up. He says this again and again. We've come across it multiple times in Mark This declaration is a promise and it has two parts. Notice that the first part is solemn. It's sober. It's even heartbreaking for these disciples when Jesus says, I'm not going to share this meal with you. But then the second part is glorious and it's full of comfort. So we see that first there's a declaration that, it, that implies his departure, his separation from his disciples. No more table fellowship for now, Jesus says to them. But then the second part is a declaration that implies his victory over death and the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. And so the great hope of all the saints in Christ. So you see that two parts of this promise And we'll consider each part of this promise, focusing especially on the second. So let's look at the first part here, the sobering words of promise at the beginning of verse 25. This isn't our Lord's focus, and so it's not going to be our focus. But we should pause and consider And think about this so that we might better appreciate how these words of Jesus would have been received by his disciples on that night. Jesus has openly predicted his coming and his his going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. He's done that at least three times, but that's just what we have recorded in Mark. The indication is that again and again he had begun... At a point in time in his ministry, back in chapter eight, to tell them what awaited him in Jerusalem. So there was this building anticipation: "We go to Jerusalem, and I must suffer and I must die." So he's been telling them about this, and also of his resurrection. But now as we've come to chapter 14, we've already seen of him speaking of his departure. And of his burial. That was back in verses 7 and 8. The woman that anointed him. He said that she has done this for my burial. So again he is speaking. He's using language. That is telling them. The time is coming. When I won't be here. I will die. I will lay down my life. And now he uses this intimate language. Of table fellowship. And tells them he will no longer drink. Of the fruit of this vine with them. And that's right after that shocking news that one of them that was at that meal would betray him. So, what Jesus is doing is saying that his mind is firmly set, it is made up to go to the cross and die. And all of this we know was very troubling to the disciples who were there with him in the room. They loved Jesus. He was their beloved teacher and their master. They didn't want him to leave. He had called them and appointed them in a special way to be with him. That's the language that's used when he calls them to be his apostles back in chapter three, that they might be with him. And they were with him throughout his public ministry. And they had table fellowship with him. And they learned from him. There was an intimate friendship that Jesus had with him. So the thought of not being with him was most unwelcome. And especially because he's telling them that the reason he won't be with them is because he's going to suffer and to die, to be killed. It was all too much for them to bear. At first, the very idea caused Peter to strongly resist and tell Jesus, may it never be. We read in John 16, 16, Jesus says, because I have said these things to you, and that's in the upper room discourse. It's the same night, the same room, the same meal. He says, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So we need to appreciate that what is here in just a few words at the beginning of verse 25 would have filled the disciples' hearts with sorrow as they think about the departure of Christ. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record it, but John tells us in great detail how Jesus sought to comfort them in light of this news and to prepare them for all that lied ahead. He seeks to calm their troubled hearts and think about that and the love that it indicates that Jesus, as he knows exactly what's about to happen to him, all of the suffering and the death on the cross, and yet he's thinking about his disciples and their troubled hearts. It's like the sick person at the hospital, maybe dying of some disease, and yet they're trying to comfort those who are visiting them. Jesus is thinking of others at this time. He came not to be served, but to serve. He's thinking of his disciples. He's thinking of his church as he's facing his final hours. And so we see the love of Christ, even in this, that he's going to seek to comfort his disciples as soon as he speaks of his departure. We get a glimpse of that here because as soon as he says, I won't be with you, he says, until it's going to come to an end, this table fellowship, but it will be resumed, he's comforting them. He's telling them what awaits. But it's interesting to think about this. We looked at this years ago, if you were here, the upper room discourse, as it's sometimes called, in John 13 to 16, and then you have there also the high priestly prayer of John 17. You could insert most of that, probably all of chapters 14 to 17 of John, between verse 25 and 26 of Mark 14. So after Jesus says, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, you could insert John 14 to 17, and then we have, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So I do with that thought want to just give us a very, very brief overview, a sampling of the ministry of Christ between verse 25 and 26 to his disciples as they're troubled on this night of his betrayal. It's not for their sakes alone, though, that we read these things, but it's for our sakes, for the benefit of the church. And many of us will think first of John 14, let not your heart be troubled. I go, he says, that's what had troubled them. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And he says, I will come again. This isn't the end. This isn't goodbye forever. I will receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. You might want to turn to John. Let's just flip through some of these pages and look at these words of comfort that Jesus interjects into this sorrowful evening. In John 14. After those words that I just read, John 14, we see John fourteen, twelve. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. You see the comfort in that? Because I leave, he will do greater works. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, I will pray the father and he will give you another helper. He had been their helper. He says, I will give another helper. My father will. And later he says, I will send the helper that he may abide with you forever. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. So it's in this context that he says, you will have another helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit your constant companion. Look at verse 18 of John 14. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, Judas, not Iscariot, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home (coughs) with him. We will make our home with him. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. And he has nothing in me. On to chapter 15, look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. There's encouragement in that. He's saying, We will part for now, at least in this physical sense. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans, but you are to abide continually in me. That was an encouragement. Look at verse 11. Of chapter 15. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Again, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, a little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Because I go to the Father. Look at verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. Verse 22, therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And then in the high priestly prayer, just look at the beginning of verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. So here is Jesus about to face his suffering and death. And he's comforting his disciples. And he's even praying that they would be with him, praying for their blessing and for their good. Well, in much the same way, having said that he would no longer drink of the fruit of the vine with them, he says, until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see how those words are calculated for comfort for those disciples on that night and for us. So as often as we take the Lord's Supper, We are to hear and we are to receive those blessed words of Jesus that he spoke, this promise from his lips. And we are to receive them as words spoken to us, to our troubled hearts, to fill us with joy, to give us his peace, to remember these words, we might rightly call the Lord's Supper a pledge of the life to come and an anticipation of the heavenly glory. So this is that forward-looking this is that future-looking aspect of the Lord's Supper and we now come to consider that in the time remaining. So having looked at the sobering words of promise at the first part there of Mark 14:25 let's look at the glorious words Of promise in the second part of verse 25. We have the glorious words of promise of our Lord. But before we look at these words, I want you to notice the shape or the structure of what Jesus says here. The joy and the glory of the second part, the until that day, the joy and the glory of that follows the sorrow of the first part. I will no longer drink. And that's pretty clear. Life is preceded by suffering and by death. Victory is preceded by what appears to be defeat at first. Humiliation comes before exaltation. The cross comes before the crown. We see that there's an order here. There's a shape to what he is saying. And this is the downward and upward shape of the gospel, we might say. Downward, humiliation and death, and then upward, exaltation, life. There's a downward shape here to this promise and to the gospel, which we see again and again in the New Testament. We saw it, for example, in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And we saw how those last verses of Isaiah 53, after all of the suffering that he would go through, we read about how he would see and be satisfied, how his work would prosper. That's how it begins. So we have this shape, this gospel shape of humility, And exaltation, Christ humbling self, being obedient to the point of death, the downward shape, and then highly exalted, raised, and ascended up to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, reigning and returning. That's the upward shape. But we need to understand that it's not merely that exaltation follows humiliation. It's not just that life follows after death. It's not just about order in sequence here, but there is causality. The exaltation is because of the suffering and death. It's because of the humiliation. It's because of the obedience. So the one causes the other, and that is something that we need to appreciate again and again, and we see this very clearly in a text like Philippians 2, that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him because he humbled himself, because he suffered and died. Now, put that in terms of our text as we're trying to put together the two parts of this promise, the sobering part and the glorious, and the joyful part. Because he gave his body for us, because he shed his blood for us, we receive the promise of future glory, of communion with Christ in the consummated kingdom when Christ shall make all things new. And we need to appreciate that in the connection between the past and the future And of course, the present of the Lord's Supper. Because he gave himself, because he died, he is able to say until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God or in my father's kingdom, as he says there in Matthew. So there's a shape to this that I want us to see here, a shape to the promise that he gives. Now consider each of these words. They're glorious words. They're weighty words. They're words that are really staggering. And it's amazing how much truth Jesus brings together in so few words when he says this in verse 25. And the first thing I want us to look at here is those words until that day. He says until that day the promised departure, the separation, the physical separation from Jesus. We might say the end of the intimate table fellowship for the disciples and Jesus, which they had enjoyed with him. Jesus is saying it won't be permanent until that day. So he immediately directs their minds to a reunion to come when they will be brought back together and to an even greater enjoyment of table fellowship with himself. On a day that he calls simply that day. It's true that after his resurrection, he's going to appear to his disciples. He's even going to eat with them. But that is not that day that he is speaking of. That day looks forward to what the two angels said to the disciples when Jesus was taken up into heaven. They're looking up into heaven. We read about this in Acts chapter 1. And they said to them, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He will so come in like manner. That's what Jesus is talking about. That day he's saying, when I come... In the clouds, with great power and glory with all of the holy angels. That's that day that he is talking about here in the promise of the Lord's Supper. So in other words, it's pointing us to the second coming of Christ. It is pointing us to what Paul talks about. It's confirmed by him. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes until he returns. Now, I'm not going to take time to elaborate here because we've more than once considered this. It's a theme that's been brought up again and again in Mark's gospel. And most recently, we've seen it in the Olivet Discourse of chapter 13. There in chapter 13, speaking of that day and that hour, it's the same day. And he says, nobody knows that day, the timing of it, not even the son, only the father. That's the day he's speaking of. And our duty is not to speculate. We considered that. It's to watch and to take heed and to pray as Jesus tells us. So that what? We are not caught sleeping when he returns. The Lord's Supper helps us do that. As we take the Lord's Supper, we are to remember that day and to know that that day is coming. And it will come and many will be caught off guard on that day, but we're given the supper and it's to keep us, to help keep us ready for the return of Christ. As often as we come to take it, there's so many things that we ought to be reflecting on and meditating upon, but one of them is that day and to be reminded that we're doing this only until he comes and he is coming. So the supper ought to reorient us as we get our minds so fixed upon the things of this world, it's meant to reorient us to that day, to again lift our eyes to the coming day of Christ that we might not be caught sleeping, spiritually speaking. So the Lord's, the Lord's Supper helps us do that. And it stirs us afresh in our hearts to say, come Lord Jesus, we're ready for that day and the fulfillment of our salvation. So until that day, says Jesus, but he goes on, he says, until that day, I will no longer drink of it until that day when I drink it, that is the fruit of the vine, new. When I drink it new, and Matthew adds with you, I drink it with you new. We've been speaking of this meal in the upper room there in Jerusalem somewhere, this large upper room that was prepared for the occasion. We've been speaking of it, and it's common to do so as the last supper, the last supper. But Jesus' point is actually that this isn't the last supper. It's not the final supper. He's saying that there will be a day when he will feast again with them. He will drink new. He will be drinking new. And if you look again at Luke 22, there's the language of eating. Recall in Luke 22, I will no longer eat of it, speaking of the Passover, until it is fulfilled. So he speaks of a fulfilling of the Passover, an eating and a drinking that is to come, that we look forward to, a feasting. That's the language of feasting, eating and drinking. So he's saying in this language that's very powerful that there will be this resumption of fellowship, of eating, drinking, feasting with his disciples at a time that is future, but certain. And then notice, he says that he shall drink it new. He shall drink it new. And that little word is so full of hope and expectation As we hear him say it, he will drink it new. Hope, expectation of what? Restoration, newness, life, blessing, and of course, perfect and unbroken fellowship with Christ. Jesus is speaking here of what has been called the messianic banquet the messianic banquet at the end of the age when all things shall be made new. And as far back as Isaiah, which we read earlier in the service, we find this rich imagery of a feast, a choice feast, a messianic banquet, this great feast that is spread to celebrate God's ultimate victory and the redemption and the restoration of his people, even the completion of their salvation. I want you to hear those words again. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Does any of that language sound familiar to you? Are we not reminded of John's glorious vision of a new heaven and a new Earth in Revelation 21, are we not reminded of the new Jerusalem there that he sees in the new heaven and the new earth, the church, the bride? We're reminded of the end of death and the end of sorrow and the end of crying. All of that we're reminded of here in Isaiah 25. This is what the promise of Jesus points us to. As he speaks these few words in the upper room and says, until that day when I drink it new. When I drink it new with you. That's what he's pointing to. That day when he shall make all things new. It's the same word. What we find in Revelation 21, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. He's making all things new. It's a significant word. So Jesus points us to that day and that day when we shall drink of the fruit of the vine with him, when he shall drink with us, his redeemed people in the kingdom of God. And that's the last part that he gives us. And it all really ties together. When he says, I'm going to drink it new on that day in the kingdom of God, you can't separate any of that. In the kingdom of God, the future feasting and the kingdom, it all ties together. In accordance with, one man says this, in accordance with the conceptions of the Old Testament and also of late Judaism, the joy and the bliss of the kingdom of God is represented as the sitting down to a meal and the enjoyment of a meal. So he's saying the kingdom of God, especially in its consummation, when the rule and the reign of God shall be fully and finally established, we see the imagery of a feast in order in symbolic language to describe something that's really indescribable. This feast in the kingdom of God, the joys of life in the kingdom of God. So let me give you an example. Other than our text. Which uses this language of a feast. To represent the joy and the bliss of the kingdom of God. We find a statement like Matthew 8.11. Many will come from east and west. And sit down. Literally recline at table. To eat with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In the kingdom of heaven. Many. Many. He says, from every tribe and tongue and nation will be counted among God's covenant people, people who were not a people, but now are the people of God, will be counted as God's people and called to the marriage supper of the lamb. We find that language in Revelation 19, verse nine. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. So you see this language of feasting, This language of eating and drinking with God and with the lamb. This is a picture of heaven and the joys of heaven and the glory of heaven and all that awaits every believer. That time when we shall be made perfectly blessed. Think of that. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoyment of God. The full enjoyment of God to all eternity. We seek in this life to enjoy God. And sometimes by God's grace, we are able to enjoy rich communion and fellowship. And to say we've almost tasted heaven, but we've not even gotten close. One day we shall enjoy Full blessedness, perfect blessedness in the kingdom of God for all eternity. This is what Jesus would have us think of. Yes, remember me, he says. I'm giving you my body. Remember that when you take the bread. Remember, I'm the bread of life. As he gives the cup, he says, Remember, I've poured out my blood. It's blood of the covenant, a new covenant, a better covenant. And it's for many, in the place of many, as a substitution. I died for the sins of many. He would have us remember all of that. He would have us remember in the present how we presently by faith and by the Spirit's work of applying the redemption that he accomplished, we now presently share in the fruits of the work of of Christ, the finished work of Christ. But he also would have us look forward. And if you get nothing else from this, remember that. He would have us look forward at the supper and remember our hope. Many of us, as we come, really every Lord's day, but once a month, we take the Lord's supper and we're weary. We find that this world, in many ways, is a wasteland, a desert. And it's a dry and it's a weary place. And we find that our souls are dry and weary and we need to be filled again. And we need our hope to be lifted. We need our eyes, our gaze to be lifted again to eternal matters. To remember the future of our salvation, our glorification. And yes, that we shall eat and drink with Christ. This picture of this full, eternal, perfect communion with God we shall be with him so it's just a foretaste we're strengthened when we partake by faith and we get a foretaste of that great day to come it's like an appetizer the appetizer isn't the main dish unless of course you're ordering appetizers as a main dish but it's meant to stimulate the appetite for what's coming and that's what the Lord's Supper is meant to do There is a future-looking aspect. It's an appetizer to make us long for more and to say, come, Lord Jesus. So I ask, are you longing for more? The supper reminds us that in Christ there is more. In Christ there's life, there's communion, There's, there's this full satisfaction. And if you're still here and you're outside of Christ, this ought to remind you as you're seeking to be filled with the things of this world, again and again, the Bible reminds us you will not be filled. You will not be satisfied. But here is a reminder that there is one and only one who can fill you and fill the deepest longings of your soul and meet your greatest need, and that's to be right with God, the God whom we've all offended and sinned against. And so as we think about this supper, as we take the supper If you're not a believer and as you see this, again, I would say to you, take it as an invitation from Christ to say, come and feast and be satisfied and come to that marriage supper of the Lamb, the eternal banquet with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these things that we can for a few moments consider what is so wonderful and beyond our comprehension. And we ask that you would help us to rise up to these things, to consider how great our salvation is. Lord, we have had a good day in your house and we thank you for the many blessings we have received from you, for the praises we have offered, for the reminders of your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your care for us, even for all of your creation, but especially that you have sent your son and that he has given himself that he is the bread of life, that all who come to him and feed upon him shall have everlasting life, that he has poured out his blood, that we might have life, that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Lift our eyes upward for another week that we might live by faith and look forward to that day when all the challenges that we face, the struggles with sin, the weariness of soul and of body, when those things shall be no more, when our salvation is completed. In Jesus' name, amen.